welcome to TLF Gems, a podcast about customer experience and insight from TLF Research. I'm Stephen Hampshire. And I'm Greg Roche. And in this episode, we'll be featuring the second part of, of my interview with Chris Daffy. Can't wait. The first one was really, really interesting. And I know we really didn't want to lose any of the dialogue between yourself and Chris. So looking forward to hearing part two, Stephen. Moving to something maybe a bit, a bit less ranty, perhaps a bit more kind of practical for our <laughs> listeners today. If you had to come up with a sort of list of, of your top tips for, for using customer insight in particular in order to drive those changes, improvements to customer service, what would your top tips be? I think the first one is making sure you've got the information you need. And often that's not what you want. Mm. And you'll know as a researcher, often they'll commission people like you to produce the stats that prove what they think they need to know. And you will know as I know, but that's not what you need to know. It's not the same thing. If you want to get some insights, which will give you knowledge, which will enable you to make worthwhile changes, which will build what you want, there are often different things you need. Uh, initially, I mean, you do not want to know, I don't think, what short-term satisfaction is. I don't want to know that, because mm. that, that's not telling you what you need to know. Now, I think we're the same on this thing. I think the first one you need to know is how easy are we to do a business? How easy is it for you to get what you want? When you want something from us, how easy is that? To get through to the person you want, to get the information you want, to get the product you want, to whatever it is, how easy is that? Because I think that ranks above anything really as to the first thing you need to know. Because if, if you make it difficult in any way, why would I continue doing business with you? Why would I be loyal to you because of that? And then under investigated areas are there is now absolute proof that's been researched time and time again that feelings drive behaviours. Loyalty is a behaviour, therefore it's driven by feelings. But many research things don't investigate feelings. How do we make you feel? How did the way we handle your complaint make you feel? Mm. You probably know that uh, Colin Shaw of Beyond Philosophy did some research into can we show direct connections between certain feelings and a customer's propensity to be loyal? and if they found some direct connections. So if we know those are the feelings that drive those kind of behaviours, we need to know whether we are triggering any of those feelings. These down here will drive disloyalty. These will just hold things as they are. These there will, will build loyalty. We need to know if we're triggering them. So I'd, I'd, I'd want to know that. What feelings do we drive? Mm -hmm. The next one I'd like to know is, you probably know that future loyalty is memory-based. Because if I can't remember past experiences, how can I drive, how can they influence my loyalty? Again, you and I are both studiers of, of uh, Daniel Kahneman, who's probably the no world's number one uh, psychologist in this area, got a Nobel Prize for, for mm -hmm. it. And he says, we do not make decisions based on experiences. The, the customer experience people need to know this. We do not make decisions based on experiences. We make decisions based on our expectation of what an experience will be and over, over and above that, our memory of what an experience was. So we need to know what expectations do customers have yeah. of the experiences we're going to give them and what memories do we have of what they were like. Those are the key drivers of future behaviour, which is what loyalty is. So we need to know that, expectations and memories. And then finally, you and I both know that although it's not all you need to know, you do need to have something which gives you an ongoing track of loyalty. And that probably is the net promoter score. Okay, it, it, it's not it in itself, but it's, it's easy to do. It gives you a trend. It enables you to compare yours versus, 
versus other companies, either who are world-class in other markets or who are in your sector. It gives you a comparison, which is always good to know, and it's easy to do. It is, yeah. I mean, we, I suppose, over over history have had somewhat mixed feelings about Net Promoter yeah, Score. Every, we all um, have, yes. But it's, there's certainly nothing... It, it does what it sets out to do. And what I think is... Funnily enough, I think the strengths and weaknesses are not what people think they are <laughs> often. So people say it's sort of simple, and it's not really. It's quite an elaborate calculation in oh, a way. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But what I really like about it is that it puts the emphasis, first of all, it's not technically a behaviour, but on, on sort of intended behaviour. Are you going to be out there saying good things about yes. it? Um, so to get a 9 or a 10 on likelihood to recommend, I've, I've really got to think you're pretty good. Um, so I think that's that's... It's a, a strong test, which is useful. And I really like the emphasis on the fact that it's not an average. We're looking at how many raving fans have you got and how many people who hate you have you got. Yes. And that I think that thinking about the distribution is a much better way of doing it than coming up with, with um, or there is one number, coming up with a number that's a sort of average. Because I think in terms of motivating change, if you start with an average score, it feels like you're trying to shift everyone up a bit. And that's not really, not really what you're doing. You're saying, how do we do more of this and yes, less of that? Yes, we want to get into that. I mean, you will have, I work with organisations who are actually in the 90 plus net promoter scores. And you kind of go, hang on, that's off the charts, that is. Um, and you look at them, and we were discussing earlier, in almost every one, if I think back of those organisations that are at that level, they're led by conviction leaders who who just, we just know that if we invest our time and resources and efforts into delivering an experience for customers, the likes of which they don't get anywhere else, if we can do that, loyalty follows. And with loyalty comes growth and profitability. And I can think of a few. And these were leaders who, they knew it was the right thing to do and needed no evidence for it. We just know that's the right thing to do. Now, can we please get on with it? Stop discussing it. Stop questioning it. Just do it. That's what you're here for. And you think, please, more of those. Because yeah. they, it's, it's not an easy challenge. It's not a short-term thing. But when you look at what starts to roll, if you use the Jim Collins flywheel thing, you start a flywheel turning that just keeps rolling and rolling, getting faster and faster, and your business grows. And you aren't spending a fortune on, on advertising and marketing. You're spending that money on looking after our customers, and they do the advertising and new customer generation for you. They do it. They're rare, but when you see them, it's, it's awesome to, to watch. I think the flywheel metaphor is, is good because to me, a lot of what we do as individuals and as, as companies is really about habit. It's about creating good habits and getting rid of bad habits. Yes. yes. Um, and it's, I guess, what we're trying to do is make total commitment to the customer a habit. It's not something we have to work hard to do. It's just what everyone in the business naturally does. Um, Absolutely. Yes. I mean, like you said, the flywheel concept's great because if you think a flywheel is a big, heavy thing, it's really hard to get going. But if you can get it spinning, the occasional flick keeps it going. Mm. If it's if it's forever just trundling around, so we've got to spend another massive amount of money on on generating new customers because we're losing the ones we've got at the other end. Or we've got to spend another load of money on doing this or fixing these problems and so on. So it's just one big push all the time. Mm. You get a good flywheel going where it, it's self-generating, just a little flick occasionally, and it just keeps spinning. So you just keep doing more of this good stuff and popping things in. I'm a, I really like it. Jim Collins is great at coming up with simple concepts, and that's a great one. And it's in terms of the practicalities, I've, I've seen quite often in, in consumer organisations in particular, 
They know they've got problems and they know how to fix them, but they haven't got the time because they're too busy dealing with all the complaints. And it's, that can be a very hard cycle to break because yes. if, if, to fix these problems, we'd have to abandon these complaints that are already you know, a month old. And how do you get the space to sort of reduce the volumes enough that we can fix the problems that are causing the complaints? Yes, yes. It's, it's taking resource from the area where we really should be spending it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get told off because I often say, as managers or, or supervisors, if you look at how you spend your time, you may find that a large amount of your time is spent fixing the problems caused by people you'd rather didn't work for you. Mm-hmm. And the people who deserve your time, those star performers, are starved of it. That's not a good way to spend your time as a supervisor. Mm-hmm. Um, so you probably have to start asking yourself, should I keep doing this or do I need to do something about the team I've got here? I'd just be interested to know your thoughts on the idea of I was going to say firing customers, but I, I probably prefer being more careful in which customers you acquire. Uh, because I think by analogy to the situation you're describing with, with employees, I think we, we in organisations often, often end up having a bad relationship with a small number of customers that soaks up a lot of cost and effort that frankly we're never going to be able to make them happy because they're just, they're just not right for us and we're not right for them. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? I'd say probably similar to yours. Um, another person I've studied a lot is Michael Porter, who's probably the world's number one think is the world's number one thinker on competitive strategy. And you'll know if you study his material. He says one of the hard decisions you have to make is what you don't do and who you don't serve. So when I'm working with organisation, one of the concepts I ask them to think about is what if you had fewer, better customers? Mm. What would that do to your business? Yeah. What if you did not serve people who never happy with what you do? And, and want things you don't really want to do or can't do. What if you didn't have them as your customers? What impact would that have on the business? Now, often it all comes down to what would, it, what would the cost be? And the answer is, well, your first cost will be a reduced turnover. But I'm convinced that the next bit would be a massive growth in margin and, and areas, things you can invest in, which make you closer to those customers you do want. So we do that. And mostly it's wide-eyed when they come back and say, goodness me, so why aren't we doing that? Mm-hmm. Why aren't we being far more selective about who we accept as our customers? Because customers have a right to choose their suppliers are. You have the same right to choose who your customers will be. And it may be a bit hard initially, and it may be seen as a bit brutal. But once you've made that decision, things, the sailing becomes smoother because there's less troubled waters ahead, less friction, less the morale of your workforce goes up. You know, all these things happen. There's so much that the benefit is. But first, you've got to make that really hard leadership decision that we're not going to be all things to all people. We're going to be very focused, brilliant things to a select range of customers that provide the volume and margins we want for the sustainability of this business. We want that. And we'll focus on that. And anything outside of that is not us. And we'll say, sorry, no, no, we we don't do that. Not us. There was... An example, I think it's in the service profit chain, but I can't exactly remember, but there was a, a consultancy organisation that trimmed its client list to the top 15%, I think it was. I haven't seen that, but I can imagine. Yeah. And I think that they created a sort of matrix, yes. which is basically you know, how profitable they are and how interesting we find working is with them. Fun working with them, yes. <laughs> and is the growth potential or whatever, yes. And it, yeah, I thought that was the courage to do that, to, to slash your yes. client list. yes. That, again, it comes back to conviction, doesn't it? It's senior people in the business, the leaders of the business saying, 
I believe in this, and I believe in it so much, we're going to do it. I did an interesting exercise in a market where you think you couldn't do this. And it was a few years ago, so it may not be the same now, but this was, and it was in the um, construction market. And I won't say who the company was, but they were, a lot of their work was working with people like, say, the big supermarket chains and building new um, outlets for them. So the big constructions they were doing. And we looked at their um, customer base and we looked at tendered work and negotiated work. And as you probably don't need any explanation for me is, negotiated work was far more profitable than tendered work. So the question I asked was, and do you want that to continue? Because they were 20% tendered, 80%, sorry, 20% negotiated, 80% tendered. No, I'd like to reverse it. So we said, well, let's make that the goal then. The goal is to make it 80% negotiated and 20% tendered, just to bring new customers. That's the only reason you'd do it. Well, you can't do that. Well, why don't we say that's our goal? Who said it's impossible? Let's do it. So we gave ourselves, or they gave themselves, a four-stroke, five-year timescale to do that. Two years later, they'd done it. Because we did all the internal things that needed to be done, all the, all the behavioural changes, changes of some people, lower volume, but much higher margin, and a much higher morale in the sales force. Because mm. it must be demoralising to spend thousands on, on putting a tender in, knowing that 80% of them or more you won't get. Yeah. Demoralising. Tenders is a slight uh, personal opinion, I suppose, but it, it feels to me that a lot of these tender exercises have the effect that suppliers are, are essentially forced to be a commodity. Because so much of the waiting is on price, whatever they say it is, price ends up being very important often. You essentially have to submit the cheapest possible quote you can and, and have it. all the value-added stuff is separate um, and charges an and it's, it's if it has no value. That's, that's the buyer's approach. Mm. Being nice people to do business with has no value to us. Yeah. Well, then we don't want to work with you because that's, that's what we do. Um, and that's a, a tough decision. To make, but you can make that decision. Yeah. I'm sorry if that's the way you go, you want to do business. That's okay. It's your choice, but it's not the way we do business. Mm. So we'll we'll know. We'll go work with other people. Um, anyway, th that's that's a big debate, and there's a big strategic debate inside an organisation, and it might not end up where it always does, but it could end up, uh, you know, because you might say, I'm sorry, we can't do that. We know we have an infrastructure we have to pay for, and that means we have to have a certain volume going through. And I can understand all that. But there are organisations who say, well, if we have to reduce our infrastructure, we'll do that. If that means that we end up with uh, uh, less, better work. Yeah, and I think that there's the, the kind of self-actualisation. Are we doing good, fun, interesting work that's making a difference to someone? Yeah, people love what they do. Because yeah, it's a great thing. Do you love the work you do? Do you enjoy working here? Do you like working with these people you work with? Do you enjoy working with the customers you work with and suppliers? If, if you can keep saying yes, 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 this is a great place. And it, it should automatically result in a very successful organisation. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily a great big organisation, but a great organisation. Yeah, and I think there is without getting too you know, political or philosophical about it, that we often end up obsessed with turnover, you know, sales, and we often end up obsessed with growth. And I think there's a, a very legitimate question about whether those are the only two things that matter. Yeah, you're driven to that by investors. Hmm. Again, I'm, a, I'm quite a fan of a lot of the thinking of Simon Sinek, and um, he kind of says that there's this, there's this thinking that a business is a finite game, and it's not, it's an infinite game. Um, who says who the biggest is? Who says who the fastest? It's only temporary. 
uh, it's temporary. Business is infinite. It's been going for as long as we've been on this planet. People have been trading. And when we've all gone, it will still carry on. So business is an infinite game. So are you an infinite player or a finite player? Because all the finite players eventually disappear. And it's the infinite players who sustain. And infinite players have different thinking. I, I like the thinking of the family businesses are in an infinite game because mm -hmm. they're thinking of generations ahead. Often private, uh, publicly owned businesses are in a finite game. How do we turn good research into, into worthwhile actions? My next one on, on when I was thinking about that is, do we have people who know how to do it? And in many cases, I think the answer is no. We do not have people with the depth and breadth of knowledge they need. As I said earlier, you won't, you won't learn that in three days. And it, the ability to apply the rigor to what is necessary to make the fantastic insights organizations like yours can provide into worthwhile actions. That's, that's a rigorous exercise. If you liken it to the implementation of, of system thinking or lean, that's a rigorous exercise. When I started working with manufacturing businesses, I realized I need to know their language. And they have a language of lean or system thinking, Six Sigma, and continuous improvement. That's kind of the basic language. They, so I studied them and got myself qualified in those areas. And when you, especially when you look at the implementation of, of lean or system thinking, that is rigorous. Uh, it starts with culture. If the culture's wrong, it don't, I don't know how many nice, fancy new tools you give them, mm. it won't work. So once you understand that, you think, cracky, that's, that's the way it's done. So that's the way we recommend to our customers you implement the thinking which will make worthwhile use of the research that people like you can provide. It needs that rigour. Uh, so the starting point is, have we got a culture where new thinking will be relatively quickly adopted and used? Have we got that? Um, if we haven't got that engaged workforce with that kind of culture, we can give them all the new tools and techniques we like, but they won't be used. They'll nod and they'll say yes, but as soon as we're not there, they, they, they'll, they'll go back to their old ways. So have we got that? And then do we have people who are trained to a sufficient level to know how to implement this successfully? And that's, a, that's another thing altogether. I mean, we have a program that's relatively effective, but that's 12 days of pro training over three months. So you learn, practice, learn, practice. That's how you learn. You don't learn from sitting in a classroom with people like me. You learn by trying it and getting feedback and debating it and questioning it and arguing about it. So it takes 12 weeks to get them up to a level where they, they walk out with, ooh, I know what I'm doing here. Um, I'm pretty sure, I'm providing I've got the leadership support and the resources, I can make a real difference here. We can get to that. We've now got people who, who've, who've got the skill level, some confidence, not the experience yet, but some confidence. And with a bit of guidance, they can make a real difference. So that's that one. And the, my final one is it always has and it always will come back to the leadership. How committed are they to this? Is it, oh, well, we've got some investors who are saying we need to be doing something about this, so okay, we'll do it, um, which is not much use. Um, or is it we've realised that this now is of major strategic importance? Therefore, we're going to put a laser strategic view on this and saying, okay, we want to be in a different position in the minds of our customers uh, in whatever is year's time. And I would say, let's make that timescale short because that in means you have to inject urgency to it. In a certain in a point in time, we want to be seen. And I'd be saying, we were discussing earlier, we don't want to be in the top quartile. We want to be seen as far and, ahead, far and away the best for what this is in our sector. Nobody gets close. Mm. Um, 
that's what we want to do. So how do we do that? What do we need to do to put our company as, oh boy, yeah, yeah. But if you want to know the best people to work with, they are, and it's you. Have we got that leadership conviction? And will they put the urgency to make it realistic? Absolutely. And I think, I mean, the leadership for anything in a business is, is always, it's where the culture comes from. It's what sets the priorities. Obviously, it sets the strategic direction. But I think it, it actually, this is not something you can do from an ivory tower. Is it? You've got to be out there showing through your own actions that, that that's what matters to you. Um, being interested in let's say it's customer experience whatever it is yes are you talking to customers are you yes are, are you, you out there demonstrating yes. that you care yes um, yes absolutely i remember i was doing an event and um, we had people from different organizations there and i managed to convince a guy that i'd worked with for many years joined the growth of his business which he's sold now but he, he had a, a a business with a 96 percent net promoter score and his conviction was off the charts to, to this is what makes a difference and he proved it and he did a presentation and then we were had questions from the audience and um, somebody was saying yeah we, we we we'd be really keen to get ourselves into those those seven and eight net promoter scores and i could see him at <laughs> and he said look 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 he just couldn't see came out to the front and said listen seven and eight is nothing until you're scoring nines and tens, you have not got the business focus that you need. You're aiming for nines and tens, ideally tens. I did a project with Royal Bank of Scotland that got them into the best retail before it all got messed up. And we had a, what was called a top box program. Top box meant tens. We want tens uh, from our customers in terms of the way we treat them, the services they get, 10, 10, 10, top box. We're not, even nines weren't good enough, mm-hmm. tens, tens, tens. And if you haven't got that focus, you'll never hit the 80s and 90s. You'll never do it. You may never hit all tens, but if you're aiming for them, you, you've got the right aim. I agree. And I think one of the traps with Net Promoter Score, and it depends on, on your industry and your customers, but it, it pretends that there's a sort of cast iron division between eight and nine and between you know, six and seven. Yes. And in reality, I think there's often as big a gap between nine and ten as there is between eight and yes. nine. So oh yeah, perhaps bigger. Oh yeah, it's a it's a bigger hurdle I think to go from nine to ten. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. But you've probably seen this with stats in Harvard Business Review a while ago showing the impact going from nine to ten in different markets can have, and it was something like a twenty five percent growth just for that step in terms of revenues generated, profit made. That that ten score makes a massive difference. Yeah. So it's the hardest step. It's like um, one of my sons is a black belt in karate and if you know anything about it brown is fine brown to black that is a massive step and in net promoter it's like going from brown to black belt it's Mm. you know all you've done so far now even more effort to get to that final step but when you get there you know if you're a black belt in contact karate you don't mess you know he's a black belt in contact karate you don't mess yeah Yeah, well I think that aiming to be black belt in net promoter is Yes. Pretty good aim. Yes, yes, yes. But it means that nine is not good enough. Yeah. That's what it means, because it means that nine, you're a brown belt. Mm. You're not black yet. Mm. I think that's a, a pretty good place to finish. <laughs> uh, so from, uh, from the black belt, that is Chris Daffy. Thank, <laughs> thank you very you. much for your time. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Okay, so that was quite, um, quite a long, but a very, very interesting sort of um, conversation you had with, with Chris. Um, knew you two guys had obviously hit it off. Um, what do you think were some of the main points sort of Chris was Chris was pulling out? Yeah, I think 
as you mentioned in the last episode, one of the things that, that makes Chris um, so kind of likable is that he's very down-to-earth, very straightforward, not because doing excellent customer service is easy. And I think one of the things, one of the points he made really is that you know, there's a lot of nuance and complexity. It varies Absolutely, a lot by yeah. industry and by company. There isn't a simple one-size-fits-all approach to this. Well, I think, well, perhaps it's simple, but it's not easy. I think yeah. it's, it's that kind of cliche, isn't it? I think, and Chris is, is very, very good at breaking it down to the sort of simple level but understanding the difficulties of actually making that happen in a given business. I think one of the things as well is he did very much overlap with our top 10 tips mm. or, or top 10 traits of world-class customers. And I found it interesting when he was talking about PLC-itis or, or the family businesses he's worked mm. with. I've never really been involved with some of the family businesses that have that medium-term view that he that he was saying is such a foundation for looking at customer satisfaction in the medium term rather than financial results to the city for next quarter. It's interesting though. It, it came up in our conversation with Ian Golding as well. I it think, did, yeah. and it's something I've thought over the years. It's very, it's very, very difficult, particularly for publicly listed companies. I think to think and act long term. Uh, it really does take, a, a, in Chris's terms, a conviction leader. I love that phrase. Um, you know, I've used it a happen. couple of times. That's such a better phrase than senior management commitment. It's about having a conviction leader. Um, I'm fortunate I've done some senior interviews um, recently in a different sector, the housing sector, and it was a real honour to get to interview some people who I would now describe as conviction leaders mm. who have that vision and have the conviction behind that vision. It's difficult because it, it's so easy to paint a short-term mindset as as common sense. You know that, that's the, the the sensible business decision is to you know save cost in the short term and all this airy fairy nonsense about the customer experience. It's all very nice, but it's not it's not proper common sense business practice. And it is, it really, really is. But it can be very difficult to fight that fight. I think in a corporate boardroom. Absolutely, and one of the things I like about Chris is he, he says things in, in a really neat way. Um, I really liked his phrase about future loyalty is memory-based, and I unshamedly have used, pinched, borrowed this, because I think it's a really good way of getting across to people. It's about what the customer can remember. You may have said you've done X, Y, and Z, but if the customer mm. can't remember you've done X, Y, and Z, doesn't matter. You know, Customer loyalty is memory-based, and I, I like that phrase. And he had various little lovely sort of, as well as his stories, some little phrases and nuggets, which I think just help the language of how yeah. you communicate. And he was talking about the language of how you communicate mm. as, uh, you know, uh, as well. It can really help people to, to understand things or not. I, I actually think it can be destructive as well. So I, one of my sort of pet hates, I think, is this idea of the, the cake and the icing. Right, um, and the cherry on top. Yeah, because I, I, I really believe that the customer experience is, it's the cake and the icing together. You can't disassemble them. And yes, you've got to do the basics well, but actually a lot of the softer looking stuff is as much a part of the cake uh, as the sponge and the raisins <laughs> and whatever else. You're not going to eat a really horrible looking cake, are you, regardless? <laughs> and I think there's, yeah. there's so many opportunities that are missed because it looks like, oh, we'll get the, the sponge sorted and then worry about the icing later. Um, which well, sounds, again, it sounds common sense. It sounds like a good idea, well but done. it's missing. Welcome to TLF 
cookery cake. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I really have exhausted my knowledge of baking. <laughs> um, I think, and the other thing to, to pick up on, on your point about loyalty is memory based. I think there's a real missed opportunity looking at specific customer journeys. They often fizzle out. I think a, a lot of organizations, again, it's that sort of internal view versus external view. And one of the things I really like about journey mapping is it, it, if you do it well, it forces you to stretch your view of when this journey starts and finishes. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's always outside what's on the process map. Absolutely. So the last thing you do, the end of your process map, is not the end of the journey. That's some point further down the line for the customer. And I think there's a lot of missed opportunity to, to take control of the next stuff and leave a really good memory for customers. Uh, and one of the things we know from psychology is that the last bit of an event is the, is the bit that's really memorable. That's, that's the memory yeah. that people will take away with them. Um, so I think it's just a... It does a, seem like a missed opportunity. A missed opportunity, when, absolutely. When you yeah. think about reinforcing how was that journey for you. Mm. Great. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, look forward to you doing some more interviews. I think the two that you've done uh, have been really interesting. Some plans to do some more? Uh, no specific plans. We'd absolutely like to do some more. So um, if any of our listeners, um, if either of our listeners would like to suggest anyone, uh, that would be really good. Or if you'd like to take part, then by all means get in touch. Um, we're always looking to, to, to learn from people who have got something interesting to say about customer experience. Absolutely. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you're using iTunes, please subscribe, rate and review us. And if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at TLF Research or at tlfresearch.com. Thanks for listening, everyone.